What does the Bible say about Christians and war? Is it wrong to fight or serve in the military? It's the Cross Culture Q&A question. Pastor Clay's answer right after this week's Crosswalk. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. He sends adversity into Jonah's life in the form of a storm, a tremendous storm designed to stop Jonah in his tracks and not let him go any further away from the will of God than he already is. Adversity. All of us face it in life, but is it possible that God uses adversity for our good? My God would never do that. My God wants my best life now. My God uh, would, would, would never bring adversity into my life. My God wants to protect me. Well, you're sort of right. He does want to protect you, but sometimes that means protecting you from yourself. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Today, we're in our second week of a series entitled Jonah, Man on the Run. Last week, we learned in Jonah chapter one that when you run from God, you'll lose that race every time. Today, Pastor Clay is taking us to Jonah chapter two, where we'll learn about how God uses adversity in our lives to draw us to him. Even as we run from God, as Jonah did, we find that God is a God of second chances. Now here's Pastor Clay with this week's Crosswalk message. Okay, the cat's kind of out of the bag, so some of you may have heard that uh, I recently got a motorcycle. Really? <laughs> now, I've had it, uh, I've had it uh, actually a couple of months, but I just, you know, wasn't in a hurry to tell anybody, because uh, people act kind of strange when they find out their pastor got a motorcycle. I don't know what it is. Gloria acted strange. She's like, all right, I can get a motorcycle now, and I can get a tattoo. <laughs> um, but I, I got a motorcycle, and if, if, if you don't know me, this, is, uh, this has been like a three-and-a-half-year odyssey uh, of you know, and I, n- I never really had the itch to have a motorcycle. I rode a motorcycle quite a bit when I was younger, when I was a teenager, a little bit in my early 20s. But, um, you know, just never really had the itch until about three and a half years ago. Kind of started getting the itch, it seemed like, for one. And so I've looked and I've researched and I've, uh, it, was, it was bad. It was, you know, bless my wife's heart. It's been, you know, because I, anyway. At one point, my middle son, Todd, who rides a motorcycle, maybe that was part of what me, but at one point I was asking about, what do you think about this or that? Or, at one point he said, uh, he sent me a text or email or something, Dad, it's time to either pull the trigger or put the gun down. So, but I got a motorcycle. And um, when I, I got to tell you all this, when I went to get my permit, right, to let me ride this motorcycle, I went to get my permit, went and took the test, and I, and I, I was kind of nervous about taking that test because it's just a written test, but, you know, I'd kind of looked at the book, but Anyway, I passed. Long story short, I passed. And uh, not by much, but I passed. And uh, after you passed the test, then I went and uh, sat down at a desk, a lady sitting there, very nice lady. And, um, you know, she's, she's nice, but she's like, you've got plenty to do, it's all business. And, uh, of course, all the people at DMV are nice. So I don't know what I'm, why I'm pointing that out. All people at DMV are super nice, right? So, <laughs> so, so anyway, um, she says... Uh, 
let, let me see your, your license, your reg, you know, my regular driver's license. So I you know, get my wallet out, get my license out, and I hand it to her. And she's not, she's not really making eye contact with me at this point. Takes the license, and she's sitting at her desk. She's looking at the license. Says, huh, you have the same birthday as my husband. And, uh, and I said, really? How about that? I said, well, it's a small world. She looks up, and she says, he had a midlife crisis, too. That's what she says. He had a midlife crisis too, but he didn't get a motorcycle. He got a sports car. Lady, that is cold. Mm. I don't know. Maybe it was. I don't know. I... So, about two, two, uh, about two weeks later, I go back to take the driving portion of the test. So I get my full endorsement, get the M. On there, So that way, someone can ride with me. My wife. Your pastor's wife is now officially a biker chick. <laughs> so, so I go to take this test, right? And I'm not really nervous about it. I really wasn't. Mike Young, who you all know Mike and Pam, they're Harley riders and stuff. And Mike had asked me, so you gonna, are you going to be nervous about taking the test? No, no. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't nervous. But I got there, and um, the guy that's going to give me the test, I, I don't even remember his name, I just called him Mr. DMV, because he is like, he is it. He, I mean, uh, patent leather shoes buffed to the buff. He's got creases on, you know, every shirt, everything is perfectly in place. He, he's got DMV cap on, he's got, even got his last name stitched into this custom fit cap. You know, he's got on the state trooper sunglasses, and this guy is like... So he, he takes us out there, and I say us, because there was another guy that was going to take the test at the same time. And Mr. DMV, was, he seemed very excited that there were two people at one time going to take this test. And um, so he begins to explain to us the six tests that you have to pass in order to get this. And the more he talks, the more nervous I get. Because he's like, I mean, he's Mr. DMV, and he is describing every, you know, and they're all like these really slow speed tests. Everything's a slow speed test. It seemed kind of ironic to me, because when people get hurt on motorcycles, they're usually not going at a slow speed. But, in any event, they're all slow speed tests. So he begins to explain these tests to me. And the more he talks, the more nervous I get. And then, to make matters worse... He turns to me and he says, now this guy, and he points to the other guy, he's not going to have any trouble at all with these tests. He says, because he's on a small bike, and he was had a little uh, smaller bike. It probably weighed you know, a couple hundred, 250 pounds, something like that. He said, it'll be easy to balance. Uh, he won't have any trouble at all. But you, on the other hand, so the guy says, but you, on the other hand, you're probably going to have some trouble with this because it's a bigger bike and it's fuel injected, so it's going to idle a little higher. You're probably going to have some trouble. You go first. He tells me to go first, right? And the first test, and he'd already said, the first test is the hardest one. And it's just, you have to figure eight or whatever through these set of cones, turn around at the other end, and come back, right? Any of y'all ever done this? Oh, I know Mike and Pam have. Any of y'all ever? So you have to come back and go to, you go first. I just murdered them cones, man. I mean, I just, I've taken cones out left and right. I mean, I think I made it through the past the first one. But after that, man, it was Katie bar the door. Every other one, I'm running them over. I'm knocking them out. I'm everything. I get to the other end. You know, I turn the bike around. I don't even try. There's no sense in trying to come back through because there's no cones left standing hardly. And he's just, he's Mr. DMV, you know, state trooper glasses on. He's just, he's just staring at me. Just giving you the... 
the DMV stare. So I get back down the other end to him, and I, and I, and I said, let me try that again. He says, go ahead. So he sets the cones back up, and uh, I don't know, I got my nerves under control or something, learned how to use the brake, and, and I got through, went through there and got through, passed the test. Fortunately for me, <laughs> I got a, a DMV uh, employee who believed in second chances. Fortunately for all of us, we have a God who believes in second chances. Because, uh, as I said last week when we started this series in the book of Jonah, all of us run from God at one time or another. Jonah was running from God. We talked about it last week a good bit in chapter 1. But the truth is, all of us put on our running shoes and run from God. Now, it might be running from his salvation. person that just knows about God's heard about God been convicted by God but but perhaps just knows that if they come to God they're they're going to have to surrender their will to him or they're going to have to start living their life as as God designed they might have to give up some things in their life and they're just unwilling to do that maybe it's a person who's already a follower of Christ but but they're running from some assignment some task that he's given us Maybe it's something to do with our relationships, uh, a, a fellow employee or, or a boss or our spouse, or, or maybe it's our tongue, the language that we use, or, or whatever it is that God is, is working or doing in our life, and we're running. Jonah ran from God. We talked about the reason last week, but it boils down to this. He didn't like what God told him to do. And so he headed in the opposite direction. Now, when we left Jonah last week, he'd just been swallowed by a giant fish. Let's pick up the story today in Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Father, thank you today for this uh, account of the story of Jonah's encounter with you in a very dramatic way. 
We talked about last week, uh, he was a prophet of God. He was a man of God, but he was also a man on the run. And so it is in our lives at times. Uh, what I ask, have been asking and want to ask throughout this series, Lord God, is that we would learn from the study of this book of Jonah more about you. Because really, that's ultimately what this book is about. It, it's not really so much about Jonah. Obviously, he's a, he's a central character, but it's more about you, Lord, than anything else. And what it teaches us about you, I pray that it would, uh, it would just penetrate our hearts to the extent that it would change our lives. I find, Father, that we often believe what we read and hear, but somehow it doesn't seem to make its way into our feet or our hands or into our head. It doesn't seem to somehow bring about change. And it needs to bring about change. I don't know all the people in this room. Some I do know. I don't know the extent of any of their lives fully. I don't know what what work you may be doing in their life. I don't know in here right now who may be running from you. But even today, Lord God, the people gathered in this room, there's probably somebody that's on the run. What I'm asking is that you would speak to their hearts, but also to all of our hearts. That even if we're at a place in our life where we we don't feel like we're running from you, Lord God, may we be conscious that it could happen at any time. That something you direct us to do may not sit well with us, just like it didn't sit well with Jonah. May, may we be prepared to be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jonah chapter 2. Now, as I said uh, last week, we, we left Jonah in the belly of this uh, fish. That's how chapter 1 ends. Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 says this, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Well, first let's kind of deal with this idea about a man being swallowed by a giant fish and living for three days and three nights. By the way, uh, that's actually what the text says too, giant fish. Nowhere in the text does, is the word whale mentioned. Um, although it, it could have been a whale. Uh, I understand technically a whale is a mammal, but uh, people still tend to think of a whale as a fish. I don't know for sure, but the text specifically or technically says giant fish. Is it possible for a man to be swallowed by a fish and live three days and three nights? No. No, that's impossible, which is why I believe that it's true. People have to get over, and I don't, I'm, I don't know if you suffer from this or not, but people have to get over this idea of thinking that somehow you have to naturally explain away every supernatural event of the Bible. He's God, and what he does doesn't have to be explained, it just has to be believed. Quite honestly, if, if God can't supersede his own natural laws, if God can't do things that are considered miraculous, then he's, he's really not much of a God then, is he? And really not worthy of anybody's worship. The second chapter of the book of Jonah is predominantly a prayer that sounds like a poem or a, or a song. And... <laughs> Jonah certainly has changed his tune. Uh, 
Because last week in chapter 1, one of the things that was very clear was that Jonah had no desire to talk with God. He didn't want to see God. He didn't want to be around God. He didn't want to hear from God. As a matter of fact, twice in chapter 1, the text specifically says that Jonah was going as fast as he could from the presence of the Lord. He don't want to talk to God. Y'all ever been there? I have been there. I don't want he, he, he didn't want to talk to God, but his tune has changed now, and he seems quite uh, willing, uh, even uh, desirous to have a conversation with God. A near-death experience and three days and nights in a fish will do that to you. Which brings us to the first idea that I want you to kind of get your mind around today, and that is this. God may use adversity as an act of grace in your life. Now, I, I know that that's kind of maybe kind of hard for some people to, to think about or, or to, to even a, a agree with. But God may actually use adversity as an act of grace in your life. People sometimes would argue, uh-uh, no, 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 no. Uh, my God would never do that. My God wants my best life now. My God uh, would, would never bring adversity into my life. My God wants to protect me. Well, you're sort of right. He does want to protect you. But sometimes that means protecting you, you ready for this? From yourself. Jonah was running from God. He's running from God as fast as his little feet, or in this case those sails, would take him. He is a rebellious prophet. He is a man of God that doesn't want to be around God. He doesn't want to hear from God. He doesn't want to obey God because he doesn't like what God has told him to do. And so he's running just as fast as he can in the opposite direction. And so what does God do? He sends adversity into Jonah's life in the form of a storm, a tremendous storm designed to stop Jonah in his tracks and not let him go any further away from the will of God than he already is. Are you okay with that? With the idea that God would actually use adversity in your life and that it actually would be an act or a demonstration of his grace? Let's... Um, Let's pretend there are two mothers talking, having this conversation. And the one mother says, my son, Chisel, keeps running out and playing in the, in the street. Hey, it's my imaginary story. It's my imaginary kid. I can give him whatever imaginary name I want. Hey, and by the way, people name their kids all kinds of strange things. Uh, nowadays. Cindy and I were up at Liberty University a few weeks ago for our nephew's graduation, and they're calling out the names of some of the grads. Somebody had named their child Pearly Gates. <laughs> Back to my story. My son Chisel, I keep, he, I, he, I keep telling him not to go out and play in the street, and he keeps going out and playing in the street. Oh well, maybe he won't get run over. But if he does, it certainly won't be my fault. You, you wouldn't do that, would you? No, of course you wouldn't. No, no loving parent would do that. You know what you would do? You would bring a chisel in, and you would bring some adversity into chisel's life. Wouldn't you? You'd bring some adversity into chisel's life. Why? Because you love him. And you know that if chisel keeps playing in the street, I got to check. If Tommy keeps playing in the street, 
I just, I'm about to bust out laughing every time I say chisel. You know if Tommy keeps playing in the street, it's not going to end well for him. And so because of your love, okay, is it possible that your adversity in the form of discipline is actually an extension of your grace and love toward him? Absolutely, of course it is. Then why would it surprise us that God would do anything else? then send adversity into our lives when we're headed in a direction that is counterproductive for our lives. Running from God, listen to me, running from God is bad for you in the short run and the long run. And as we said last week, when you run from God, you'll lose that race every single time. And so God may even use adversity in our lives. If you're here today... And I, like I said, even as I prayed a few moments, I don't, I don't know everybody's life. I don't know everything that goes on in everybody's lives. But if you're running from God today, you're running from his salvation. As I said, you know, okay, yeah, forgiveness, and you can have heaven and all that stuff. But God's going to want to change me. Yep, he is. By the way, again, because he loves you. Or you're running from some some task that... That you know he's laying on your heart. Some way of serving him he's laying and you're, you're running. Or, or somebody that you're supposed to be ministering to or whatever it is. Listen, don't be surprised if God sends adversity into your life. He loves you. Don't, don't this, oh, I just can't believe God would, would let this come into my life. Really? Have you checked your life lately? Can you say you're where God wants you to be? Now listen, I, I didn't mention this earlier, uh, but I should, I should really mention just so you don't confuse and think every time adversity comes into your life that it's something God has done. Not necessarily, all right? Let, let me just say this and we'll, we'll move on. Adversity can, can come from several places. Uh, adversity can come from, number one, it can come from our enemy. It can come from Satan. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul uh, reminds us the importance of that. He says, uh, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Paul talks about these fiery arrows or darts that, that he'll come at us with. And they can be in a lot of different ways, but certainly we know that we can face adversity from the devil. We can also face adversity just as a result of living in a sin-cursed world. That can be a reason for adversity. In other words, um, we, we live in a world of, that is bad or that has bad in it. Because of the sin curse, and and as a result of the sin curse, bad is simply a part of this world as it exists. Uh, To me, some of the the tornadoes uh, that have done so much severe damage and and taken lives the last few weeks would be uh, perhaps a a demonstration of that kind of adversity that can come. It's just as a result of living in a sin-cursed world. It's just where we are. And adversity, as I said, can come from God. You may have to discern, and God will bring that to you as you begin to turn, as you begin to slow down and stop running and begin to say, okay, God, am I running? What, what's going on? What, what, are you trying to get my attention? God will let you know whether, whether it's his adversity that's working or not, but God will use adversity to draw you to him. I, I remember uh, a number of years ago being in Sri Lanka, and I had the privilege of preaching one Sunday in a, in a church there, and... Um, at the end of the service, this very elderly lady uh, came forward, and, and it was a great, I mean, she, just, she gave her life to Christ, and, and, and she, I don't know how old she was, but you don't have to be very old to look old in Sri Lanka. It's, it's a rough 
life. But she was a very aged-looking lady. And she had lost everything in the tsunami. Uh, she had no more home. She had no anything. And, um, and she discovered Christ in the midst of her adversity. God can use it. It's actually an act of His grace. Which uh, brings me to the second idea that I want to share with you. And that is this. Uh, we should acknowledge God's sovereignty as an act of gratitude. Jonah doesn't like what God wants him to do. Jonah may not understand how God can extend mercy to a people as wicked as the people in Nineveh. Jonah may not want to go to Nineveh, but Jonah has learned who God is. And Jonah has learned what God has done. And he's discovering that God is sovereign and on his throne and accomplishing his purposes. That's really what, what most of this second chapter is about. This, this prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God for what he's done. Look at verse 3. For you have cast me into the deep. Notice that. For you have cast me into the deep. If you've read the story before. For you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. By the way, that last part of verse 3 is a direct quote of Psalm 42, 7. Why do I bring that up? Just to say to you that in times of adversity, it's never a bad idea to have some of God's word planted in your heart. that You can recall it during times of adversity. Even out of Jonah's adversity, God's word is coming back to him. Your breakers and billows passed over me. Now, technically, it was the sailors that tossed him in, and they did so at Jonah's direction, right? You've read the story, if you were here last week, Jonah's one, I'll throw me in, then the sea will become calm. So the sailors are the one that tossed him in at Jonah's direction, but here's what Jonah knows. Jonah knows that ultimately, God is in charge of that ship and our ship. Jonah knows that ultimately, God is sovereign over his creation Jonah knows that God is the one that sent the storm, that that threatened the ship, that brought fear to the sailors. God is the one that that kind of fixed the dice so that when, when the casting of the lots pointed to Jonah and he and his secrets out, God is the one that ultimately made it so that Jonah is tossed into the sea and his, and his forward momentum, his forward motion running away from God suddenly came to a screeching halt. He knows it's God. Look at the verse 5, first part of verse 6. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. You don't have to be a literary genius to figure out what Jonah is saying here. I was a dead man. I was as good as dead. It was over, finished, I'm done, kaput. And it was my rebellion that got me in this situation to begin with. And then the last part of verse 6. But you have brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. Pit there being a reference more than likely to to the grave, to the point of death. I was dead. I was drowning. I was sinking to the very depths of the ocean floor. God knew that, Jonah knew that God was in charge of all that. And Jonah also knew that God is the one that sent the fish to swallow him up. And listen, three days 
and three nights inside, a, inside the belly of a fish may not sound like Club Med, but as far as Jonah was concerned, it beat the mess out of being dead. And so in verse 9, he says, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. What? You got thrown in the ocean. A big storm thrown in the ocean. You got swallowed by a fish. You're going to thank God for that? Yeah. With the voice of thanksgiving. And that which I vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. No truer words were ever spoken. Jonah's heart was not right. Still was not right. We know that. His heart was not right toward the people of Nineveh. But Jonah knew truth, and this truth he knew. Salvation is from the Lord. God is the one who delivers us from our sin. God is the one who rescues us from ourselves. God is the one who meets us and provides for us in the midst of adversity. Jonah knows that. So, here's the third one. We better take action on God's second chance as an act of obedience. Now, We don't actually see Jonah take action until next week in chapter 3. You know, we'll see him move out next week in chapter 3. So we don't actually see him take action today. But after, after the storm, after being thrown in the ocean, after being left for dead, after being swallowed by a fish, after being in there for three days and three nights, after, after praying a, a prayer of praise to God, singing a song of thanksgiving for God's deliverance and God's hand in stopping him from running and, and keeping him alive when it looked like he was dead in the midst of all that, when, when Jonah offers that, up to God then verse 10 says this then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land I was reading that verse and I got to thinking you know sometimes when when we run from the will of God sometimes when we're disobedient sometimes when we're a man or a woman on the run and God finally brings us to a stop and turns us around, sometimes we may still have to live with the stench of our rebellion for a little while like Jonah did. But it is much better than being out of the will of God. Jonah knew God. He knew what God had done. He knew what God had provided for him. And Jonah knew that he'd better take advantage of this second chance that God was giving him. Because it's exactly what it was. I've heard people say, maybe, maybe you've even said it sometime in your life. Well, my heart's just not in it. And I, I just don't think God would want me to do it if my heart's not in it. Really? Because the book of Jonah seems to teach us something else. The book of Jonah seems to, seems to teach us that even if our heart is not in it, our feet better start moving. Jonah's heart still was not right toward the people of Nineveh. But his heart had changed towards God and he knew obedience is better than sacrifice. Y'all know that, uh, that story in the Gospels where uh, Peter is, uh, you know, all being Peter, all proud of himself. You know, he's in this conversation and he says uh, to Jesus, he said, well, Jesus, because Jesus had told him, you know, he indicated that everybody's going to fall away. And, of course, Peter certainly knows more than the Lord, knows better than the Lord. And so he says, Jesus, I'll tell you this, uh, uh, even if I have to die for you, I will not deny you. Y'all remember that story? 
And of course, Peter runs off and hides in the dark. Now, there's this great, there's this great scene in John 21. After the crucifixion, after the resurrection, and Peter is dealing with the guilt of, of what he had done. And, and I'm sure that all the disciples were, were dealing with it to some degree because they'd hung out with him for a number of years. I'm sure they're all feeling, man, I, I didn't stay there with Jesus. But Peter is the one that stood up in front of God and everybody and said, said I'm not running. I, all these others, they may be coward, but I'm going to stay here till I die. So he's dealing with all that guilt. And there's this great story in John 21 where Jesus comes to him and begins to ask him these questions. You remember that? And Jesus said, uh, Peter, do you love me more than these? Because that's what he'd said before, remember? Oh, I don't, these other ones, I don't know. But, but Lord, I'm in it. I'm in it to win it. Do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, yes, Lord, I love you. I'm sure quite a bit more uh, humility in his voice, in his life at that point. And in the story, do you remember, Jesus keeps asking the question in one way or another three different times. Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you, you know I love you. Peter, do you, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And of course, Jesus gives him response. There's more to the story than that. But, but do, you see what, do you see what Jesus was doing there? He was giving Peter a second chance. It's what he always does. He's the God of second chances, ladies and gentlemen. He's the God of second chances. I don't know who in here today perhaps is running. I don't know what would be in your life that would cause you to think that going away from God would be better than running or walking with God. But maybe we should take off our running shoes and keep figuring out how we walk with God. Because I can promise you this, walking with God is a whole lot better than running away from God. What a God we serve. Jonah rebelled against God and ran. God could have left Jonah in his sin and the consequences, but instead, God pursued Jonah out of love as an act of his amazing grace. Jonah acknowledged God was in control and God had saved him. So when God gave Jonah a second chance, he was ready to take advantage of it and walk in obedience. Jonah's heart still wasn't where God wanted it. But as Pastor Clay pointed out today, whether our hearts are in the right place or not, it's always a good time to obey God. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. 
Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Periodically we uh, take a question that someone has turned in, uh, a question about what the Bible has to say about some particular subject. And today, appropriately enough, we're dealing with this question. What does the Bible say about Christians and war? Is it wrong to fight or serve in the military? Now, some of you might say, well, that seemed kind of strange uh, question to ask on uh, Memorial Day uh, weekend. But actually, I think it's very appropriate that we ask it uh, today. Is it wrong for Christians to fight or serve in the military? Because there actually are, uh, there are people that, that feel that way, I think. Um, I'm not an expert on Quakers, but I believe that, that the Quaker position is that, uh, that we're to be pacifists and that uh, Quakers are what are known as conscientious objectors. They don't serve in the military, or at least not in a combat-type uh, capacity, as uh, a result of their conviction. The conviction is primarily based on uh, this familiar passage of Scripture in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. Thou shalt not kill. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Um, Some of you, perhaps, who are a bit of uh, movie uh, aficionados may have seen this before. There's a great classic uh, Gary Cooper film uh, by the name of uh, Sergeant York. Uh, Anybody ever seen that? Yeah, a couple of us in here have. Um, It it is a great film, but it's the story of Alvin York, this uh, East Tennessee mountain boy, mountain man, who, uh, who struggled with whether he should fight in the First World War or not. It's a true story. And uh, his struggle was based on this verse and, and his understanding that, that perhaps he was, shouldn't be involved in war because thou shalt not kill. Now, we discussed this verse a while back when we were discussing the topic of the death penalty. Um, uh, don't have, we won't spend a lot of time on it, but just to remind you that if, if you remember we're here and we talked about that, uh, that this idea of thou shalt not kill for, for our understanding is best translated as murder. Kill is actually best translated as murder. That thou shalt not murder is the idea that God has uh, there in the Ten Commandments. Actually, a better verse to look at probably in dealing with this subject would be in Romans uh, chapter 13. That says this, for it, uh, meaning the government in the context of Romans 13, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God. Watch this now, referring to the government. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Certainly God is a God of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. But God is also a God of righteousness and justice. And it is God's desire that all peoples would live in freedom and in righteousness. And when those rights are threatened by uh, evil powers or, or evil individuals, then it is the government's responsibility, be it a local police force, or even a, a, a military of the government is their responsibility to try and uh, restore the freedoms and, the, and the, 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 the living that may have been taken from them as a result of the practices of some other evil uh, entity, empire, or country, or whatever the case may be. Now, I should say that it is not appropriate for Christians to go to war 
in an attempt to convert people to Christianity. That is never right. Historic events like uh, the Crusades and the Inquisition or any other event that tried to forcibly convert people to Christianity has always clearly been outside the bounds of what God intended. The decision for a relationship with God has always been a personal one between God and that person that each person must individually decide to do. You and I should share the message of Christ with anyone who will listen. You and I should take the message of Christ to the farthest reaches of the earth, even at the risk of our own lives. But we should never try to convert people by force. That is clearly outside of what God has designed. But the bottom line is, there is absolutely nothing wrong. There is no prohibition against defending people's freedoms and and defending righteousness in the world when evil or wickedness comes up against it. And nowhere in Scripture are people prohibited from serving in their military, which is what this weekend is about, Memorial Day weekend. It is a time of recognizing those who have paid the ultimate price to defend their nation. Memorial Day, the idea of Memorial Day or Decoration Day, it was originally known, started in the, in the uh, late 1860s, uh, 70s, 80s, somewhere in there. It started with decorating the, the graves of uh, soldiers who had been killed in the Civil War. On either side, the people began to decorate uh, their graves and just to remember uh, sacrifices that were, were made. It eventually became a national holiday. And even today, in the midst of our uh, traveling and a lot of people traveling this weekend uh, in the midst of our picnics and, and, and watermelons and, and whatever else that we have and should enjoy. Uh, we also need to take time to remember that there are people who have shed their blood. There are people who have given their very lives so that you and I could walk into this place today without any fear of reprisal, without any uh, danger of, of being run off or thrown in jail or whatever the case may be. It is the freedoms that we enjoy as a nation that have been paid for by the very blood of men and women in the armed forces through the years. 